Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Shona Mitchell-Beats. She started her career in event management before taking on the role of Chief Operating Officer at Headspace when there were just three people. She scaled the company for almost six years and today spends her time as an advisor and non-executive director to other founders and others scaling tech companies. My name's Shona Mitchell-Beats. Um, probably best known as the former COO of Headspace, the meditation app. I joined that company very, very early stages um, and then grew the business over six years, which was an incredible experience and learned an awful lot and have since then been sharing that knowledge and wisdom with various different entrepreneurs and CEOs and COOs. Um, also with a very, you know, usually with very big visions and missions and trying to do amazing things in the world. So primarily in, in apps, primarily in digital content. Um, but yes, I've been doing that for the past few years now. Amazing. There are two questions that I like to ask everyone at the, the start of these conversations. And, um, the first thing is what is something that you believe to be true that most people in your industry would disagree with? Mm, such a good question. And I've really had to ponder on this. I think firstly, sort of even deciding what, what field or what industry I'm in. Um, yeah. cause I suppose in a sense, you know, I'm a, I'm an advisor and you know, I'm not sure how you can sort of class that as an industry, but I suppose one thing that came to mind, um, and I think a lot of people find possibly unusual about me is that even though I've spent many years working in technology and with technology, I'm actually not an enormous fan or um, uh, supporter of technology in a way. I am and I'm not. Like I think it has enormous benefits, um, but I think it, I'm interested in the future of it. And I do wonder whether to some extent it might be a little bit like cigarettes <laughs> where you know, they were sort of promoted and everybody smoked. And then obviously further down the line, we realized that that wasn't so great for our bodies. And so um, I suppose the thing um, that I perhaps disagree with some of my peers maybe is that I'm not sure technology is the be all and end all for our happiness and future lives. And I think it should be used with caution. Um, so that's that's the one thing that came to mind when I was trying to think of something in answer to that question. Wow. Comparison to cigarettes, that's a strong one. <laughs> it's yeah. Tempting to go in. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, and it, are you talking there about kind of the nefarious effects or, or kind of where does the, where does the comparison hold for you? Yeah. Well, I think, I think first of all, technology is very addictive. I think it can be very addictive. Um, and I suppose more of this has come come through for me now being a mother and being really responsible for the next generation and the next generations that are to come. Um, I think before I had kids, I probably didn't worry about it too much. It was all very sort of self-centered enjoyment or lack of enjoyment thereof. Um, but also my exposure to technology was a lot later in life. So I think Facebook came out. I was already kind of at university when Facebook came out. So I haven't grown up with technology as part of my childhood. Um, and so I think, you know, by the time that entered my life, I was already a lot older and I was probably a little bit more able to understand what's good or bad for my body or good or bad for my mind. Whereas I think now we're in a position where, um, you know, technology is jumping into the hands of very, very young children. Um, and that is really where my concern comes from. And I think we've already seen the impact of particularly social media 
um, and various different things. But also VR, you know, on the one hand, this is amazing. But also, you know, what does this do for our kids when they would prefer to live in a fake world versus the real world? So I don't have any big answers. I just think they are things that will be are already showing themselves as potential impacts in our future and for our future generations. So that's kind of where it all comes from. Okay. And so is the technology at large, is it the internet? Is it kind of devices or what's the, what's the line? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. And I think that having made apps and been part of creating technology, I always position it quite simply with people you know google maps for example is a very helpful app um and that has brought a lot of benefit to a lot of people's lives for example it's very practical and it's really unlocked something in our human experience we're not now getting out our maps and sort of planning our route to get somewhere absolutely amazing you know if i gave my child a phone and it had google maps on it i don't think they would feel any need to, um, you know, commit suicide because they were engaging with Google Maps. But we have seen an extraordinary amount of um, children having really detrimental mental health impacts from using things like social media. So I think, you know, I think there is a clear line where technology can be both incredibly beneficial and helpful. Um, but then there's another side where it clearly is having a detrimental impact on our mental health. And it's one thing for that to happen for adults. It's another thing for that to happen for children. And I think sadly, a lot of parents are really unaware about the way that things like social media are created in order to be addictive and in order to be um, enticing in different ways. And it's like you see one thing and, you know, you see somebody hit somebody and it's like, oh, well, that's boring. Now you want to see the next thing. And it's the same as video games, etc. So I just wonder what we are conditioning ourselves with and our children. Um, with everything that's now available and is put, being put out there. But as I say, the line for me is, you know, Google Maps, fine. My banking app, not going to give me an emotional impact. You know, a lot of TikTok, social media, Snapchat, et cetera. So, you know, there is, there is a line, I think. Yeah. Okay. And how do you then think, how do you think about the use of technology as, I guess, as kids grow up, then, right in a world that is going to be more not less technology oriented how do you think about the balance of helping them understand and use technology in the right way without overexposing them to it at the same time i guess how, how do you try and navigate the line between like well, by not exposing them to it they might actually be behind in a world that is going to be more dependent on it um, while at the same time not having the nefarious effects that you, you're talking about? Mm, well, there, I would say that's some of the biggest questions of our time because in all honesty, I think it's very clear that we have a generation that is, is growing up and they're not very happy. You know, they are increasingly becoming less and less happier. Um, and so I think that, you know, if you are a parent or if you're somebody that concerns about, you know, the health and happiness of the next generation. You simply can't not think about that question. It's a very difficult one because I think you've got two sides of it and you're right, Josh, you've got um, what a parent can do with their child. But then also I think there's a wider issue and a wider question around how, you know, we as society deal with it. So for example, there are, you know, the legal system, for example, is very well structured to try and support us at large as human beings. And I think about, say, film industry, you know, for many, many years, there's been ratings on films, um, you know, 18s, etc. you know, cigarettes, driving, set, you know, there are all these things that sort of a much higher level sort of governments and, and laws, etc. put in place. So I think it's sort of twofold. I'll be very interested to see where we get to with, um, trying to help at large which with the internet it's very difficult because obviously it's just this incredible you know the world wide web is almost just so vast and um, unmanageable you, it's very difficult to put any kind of boundaries on that um, and then as parents it's a real it, you, you're fighting a bit of a losing battle as I say it's like even this VR headset as soon as my daughter saw it she's like let me check it out let me try it out <laughs> 
Um, and then, you know, as soon as she takes it off, the world is boring. So I think there's just some really big existential questions we have to ask ourselves and think about moving forward is where do we want to live? You know, do we want to live in the universe? Do we want to live in the metaverse? And, you know, I would argue that the universe has more to give than the metaverse potentially. But I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult narrative to um, to put forward to our children as they grow. But in the same way that cigarettes were addictive, you know, you have to find a way through it really for what's going to be good for them as they grow. Yeah. Okay. Now, bringing it back to to learning uh, a little bit. So, second question I wanted to to ask you was, at a personal level, what was the kind of the best, the most um, impactful learning experience that you have gone through yourself um so i think i mean definitely one thing i found in my life with regards to learning is that i have learned way more quickly and with way more um depth when i'm actually passionate about something so in life where i just genuinely get excited about a particular subject matter learning becomes very quick and fast um and i think that's interesting you know again i sort of think about sort of children and you know what we're asking our children to learn as we grow i think you've got to be passionate about something to want to learn about it i think the second thing also that i experienced is is a learning which is almost um more embodied than just sort of inputs of information so um you know, I had a huge burnout experience when I was 30 and was very cerebral and very academic and had always been that way my entire life and had always sort of felt like I can, you know, if I can get more information and I can put more information into me, then I will be able to fix something or solve something. Um, and actually at that time, it was almost the opposite. Um, and as I say, that's sort of when meditation became a huge part of my life. It was just before Headspace. And in fact, I needed the opposite. So the learning experience was actually not about more information going in. It was very much more about um, observing and experience something in a more embodied way. So I think there's sort of learning, which is information, new information, which we can gather. And then I think there's a real embodied sense of learning, which is very, very different and can arguably bring you um, even more wisdom than, you know, information going in. So that was quite a profound learning experience because it was quite different to what I'd always understood, which was I need to read or I need more inputs. More inputs will make things better and actually less inputs made things better in that. And I learned more, if that makes sense, in in that situation. That makes makes a lot of sense. And how did that manifest itself? How, how long was that period approximately? Do you... And the period of learning, would you say, or the... Yeah, I guess kind of the, the period through which you changed your approach to to learning. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's 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 been ongoing really since it happened. But I think the, the experience of understanding the difference was probably probably just a few short days, really. I think it was be, it being able to sort of sit down and instead of trying to think my way out of this um problem and the problem was I had really intense anxiety and I was trying to think my way out of that and let me ask lots of people to give me the answer to get out of this um, and actually it was quite a shift to it but it was only in a few days and a couple of sessions that I realized that you know there's sort of learning from your your gut and learning from your sort of body and then there's learning in your mind and actually to an extent they are they are and can be a bit different um, but then I think it was a complete step change from that point for me to realize that not everything can be solved actually with thinking and sometimes actually creating space um, mm -hmm. can bring you some of the answers that you need. Okay. And how does that change your approach to learning today? So can you give me maybe an example yeah. of how you would have gone about something before and how you try and solve like more for bigger problems today yeah it's a really good question i think i realize now that sometimes the answers will come from nowhere if that makes sense and what i mean by that is it's good to 
it's good to learn, it's good to read, it's good to understand somebody's perspective. But quite often the manifestation of what that means to you will come in a very will come in a period of quiet or will come in a period of reflection or will come in a period of stillness because I think we can put a lot of information into our minds but actually what we then do with that or how that then affects our life I think has to come through an embodied experience of of that it's different you know if you're practicing for an exam and you just need to learn a bunch of stuff and you need to write that stuff down then fine and obviously that was my experience of learning right up through university it's like Put this information into your brain, spur that information back out again. Fingers crossed you've got a good memory, jobs are good and you've done well. But actually, you know, with some of the really big things in life, like birth, like deaths, like, gosh, I've got anxiety and I can't move. And and, and for me and what I started to experience in my adult life is they're some of the most important things that are really keeping people awake at night rather than, you know, do I have the answer to this question about, you know, I don't know how to fix this or you know, how to best do an interview or da 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 da. They're not really the things that keep me up at night. The big things that keep me up at night um, were very, very different and probably more existential questions. And I feel for, for me, there's still an incredible amount of learning you can do about those things, like hearing from wise elders or listening to people that have gone through experiences, but but actually giving it some space to percolate and um, live in you as information, I think is really, really important. And, and almost that's my thing about technology overload. You could just keep going and keep putting information into your head, but when are you actually sort of, you know, giving it space to become part of you, I think is important. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I often talk about a healthy information diet, <laughs> which is really about not just how, like, first of all, moderating the amount of, of it that you that you actually put on your plate yeah, but also maybe. trying to figure out how to how to engage with it in different ways so or how okay. so um now i have a, a set of uh, of other questions kind of diving a little bit more into into the work that you you did with headspace and some of the parallels there to to learning um one of those questions was written by chat gpt <laughs> And so I will ask you maybe at the end if you can figure out which one it would be. Okay. <laughs> so it's just a, a thing. Ruth, I, I can't get away from AI recently. And so it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, ask everyone on the, on the podcast as well. Um, so uh, first question I wanted to ask you. So. Headspace really launched a movement. It changed some of the way of how people thought about wellness, about um, meditation. And I just wanted to ask, like, how did that start? Where did the, what was the first, the first domino, I guess, that um, kind of, started the movement started the change um well i think i think probably the biggest um well the the first step i suppose going back to the beginning and the roots of headspace were that it was andy puddicombe the you know one of the founders of headspace he was he, he he was a Buddhist monk for 10 years, but then he began practicing um, in a, you know, in an environment where he was working with different people who were not in, um, you know, in the monasteries and he was teaching them how to meditate and seeing the impact that that particular practice was having on those people and the positive impact it was having on those people with regards to debilitating experiences like stress and anxiety and depression um you know which which at the at the time that he was doing this were was all over the press you know like as a as a human species we were not doing so well you know we were riddled by stress and anxiety and depression etc so I think really the first sort of the, the the first moment or that first shift was Andy 
really acknowledging that this particular practice of of meditating and some of the techniques that are used in the practice of meditation through which he had been taught and um, were able to bring um were able to bring a huge impact onto these things and so he asked his teachers for the for the permission to be able to start teaching these practices outside of the monastery and with lay with lay people and i think that was the first move really and and an enormous step if you think about it to actually start to take this wisdom and apply it in a in a very very different environment you know where you are not in a monastery and you're not surrounded by the rest of um rest of that practice there's been lots of discussion and debate around whether that's right or wrong but for me i come down to um you know come down to this fact that if there is a very very simple practice which anybody and everybody can do which can for example mean that somebody doesn't have to take medication every day or is able to go back to work or is able to be more present with their children and less um you know angry with their children or just show up as a as a better human through their life then that's groundbreaking so i think that was the really the first sort of domino piece as you say is sort of andy really saying hang on i think there's real there's real potential to improve the health and happiness of the world here if we make this step and is this step okay to do and how do we do that and and how did that go from i guess so it went from idea to reality that's that's one thing you started doing sessions in person right so events how how did it go from a movement that was constrained by the events right by the in-person nature to something that had genuine worldwide scale right something that actually went way beyond even even him i would say right mm -hmm. um yeah do how yeah how did you go how did that go from one to the other and and what made people take it seriously even outside of those events outside of the in-person that the 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 I think the reality was that you could see very quickly with the events, for example, that it had a positive impact on everybody. There, there, there really was no one that would come to an event and say, I didn't like that. Or, you know, there were various questions around, is it working? Should I be doing it this way or that way, et cetera. But everybody was having a positive impact from um, doing the practice and a very small practice it was just a couple of minutes or so in the event that everybody was having a positive impact doing that practice and so it was quite clear that it was it was almost relevant to everybody and would have a positive impact on everybody the, the piece that then needed to happen is how do you invite people to practice because it's all very well and good and it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier I could give you information about meditation you know I could get you to read books i could get you to learn about the science about it i could do all of these different things for your brain but i cannot give you the feeling of meditation unless you sit down and you close your eyes and you go through the practice so that was the key thing that we had to do was how do we how do we create that invitation and how do we bring people to take a moment to try it um and that's where you know, and again, you know, this is where I'm a huge fan of technology. That's where we were able to take this very, very simple practice, which is essentially an audio um, guided experience. And because everybody now has their phones and that ship has sailed and those phones live in basically everybody's pockets all over the world. Well, actually, you know, let's do something very, very good with that. And let's distribute something of enormous positive impact through that, because that is now the way that people are consuming experiences and information. And we were able to, out, you know, the click of a button, you could have that experience. That, you know, pre-technology, how else would you go about doing that? You know, but, but really at that point, it's either the television screen or the radio. You know, these are the ways through which you are communicating with people. Um, so the app gave us the ability to, obviously you have to, people have to download it and they have to want to do the practice. But what we found was that because it was word of mouth that was growing headspace, it, it, in a way, it wasn't even us having to tell people one individual would normally do it, be like, wow, that, 
was incredible and has changed things for me in a very positive way. And they tended to tell their friends and family about it. So really it was a word of mouth kind of spread. And and I think when you're being recommended to do something by a friend or family member, you are more likely to, you know, take the time to maybe sit down and give it a go um, than if you just read an advert, for example. Yeah. And and have you found that it that it's spread in the same way all over the world, that people kind of got used to or got started with this new habit in a similar way wherever they were? Or were there any differences in how people approach this? Um, the, um, well, the, the, the differences that come to mind, it sort of reminds me when we went into Goldman Sachs um, and we were introducing the idea of Headspace and meditation to their team. <laughs> And it was a take 10 was, was our sort of starting point of meditation. And basically the, the, the question that we would ask is like, what's the two minute version? Like, I want the two minute version. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, the one thing I would say, well, there's a couple of things really. I think that we would find that, you know, for a certain mindset, the science was very, very important, you know, like for a certain, um, for a certain per person, that is what is going to encourage them um, or incentivize them to actually do the practice. And um, for other people, it might be, um, you know, user recommendations um, or the feeling that they are going to get from this. And so understanding the feeling that they're going to, to have rather than the science would be more important. And then I think other than that, as I say, time was always a big thing. You know, people are so time strapped nowadays, genuinely you know, I understand that question about the two minute version. People are really struggling to add another thing to their list of, of something to do. So, you know, it's really working. It was really sort of working to, you know, provide a way in for as many people as possible, given all the different constraints that individuals have on a day to day basis, but also how their mind operates and what motivates them and what incentivizes them to do something, which is very, very different for for everybody around the world. But that was our our audience was how to, you know, our vision was the health and happiness of the world. And so we had to really sort of work out the world in that, which is all age ranges and all different mindsets. So, so how did that translate? For example, would you have different strap lines in different countries or for different age groups? Like what, what were the, some of the things you, you were looking at? Yeah, exactly that. It was always, you know, what we were putting out was an invitation to try it really it's um you know it was never a hard sell you can't do a hard sell with something like this you simply can invite people to it um and, and share the invitation but you know the way that we would share that invitation was done mindfully for the people that we were talking to so you know an invitation to somebody at goldman sachs might be very different to an invitation to um you know the teenager of a of, of a parent who who is trying to help with you know, worrying thoughts and anxiety, et cetera. So, um, you know, it was really just understanding what what resonates with different people. And yes, like you say, then we would use that in, in the communication in the right places or even with the particular um, programs and courses within the Headspace app because obviously there was, you know, so many of them and they grew over time. Yeah. So there's something very interesting around kind of this, I'd say, competition with t time. <laughs> It's time available in a day, right? Which uh, I think is very similar to to what we hear around learning. Um, mm -hmm. The amount of of conversations we have with people about um, how what their experiences with learning, and they you you talk a lot about how much they want to learn, how much like what they might be excited about learning, and then. You ask about well, what what are you learning, and you often hit the walls like, well, I don't have time for it right now. Yeah, which is a it's a really interesting one. Is there anything that that you went through as you went through a bunch of different iterations? Obviously, anything that stands out as a kind of a, um, a light bulb moment or something that that made you think about that time dedication, that use of time differently. Uh, um, as you try to scale Headspace, as you, as you try to land a value proposition uh, mm -hmm. of Headspace? Um, I suppose we, 
I suppose in a way we, you know, we, we, we all wake up and we approach our day with various different, um, with, with a, with a certain value set in mind. Maybe that's a way to think about it. You know, um, and, and this really depends on who you are and where you come from, because a lot of people, um, you know, most of their day is already decided for them, if that makes sense. So you have to get up and care for your children. You have to get to work. You have to provide food on the table. You know, you have to to make sure that the house is clean and presentable and not cool. You know, there are certain things in our, you know, I would say there are certain sort of basic survival things that most of it, and to be honest with you, for a lot of us, that is all that we can fit on our plate for the day. And I think it's really important to be mindful of that. You know, a lot of, a lot of people around the world are simply... Um, beholden to what is having to be done that day. I think if you're lucky enough, and I would say lucky enough, because I think it's a real privilege if you do have spare time in your day to do something else, then the decision about what you do is based really, I think, on a value, uh, you know, a kind of value set. So I think it's trying to help people um, understand the the benefits of spending time with you or your content or your your product for example so obviously with headspace it was um you know always share it being able to sort of share um the impact that the time the other people that had spent the time on that um, experience had 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 from it um, but I think ultimately that's all you can do really when you have any product or experience that you're putting out into the world is, does this align with someone's value set and is it important to that person? So if it's important to that person to learn a new skill or understand something different about the world or, um, you know, perhaps they want to kind of level up their um, sort of skill set here, there and everywhere, the motivation to do that comes from their value set for that day and they will prioritise that above other things. Um, But that, you know, you can encourage people to shift their value set and try and encourage them to make decisions about what's important or what's not important. And that's the glorious goal of advertising, right? That's what the best advertisers in the world do <laughs> all the time. Um, you know, what, what, what an incredible, you know, that, that, that's what they're doing is like, hey, come over here and do this. This is going to change your life. Come over here, do this. It's going to change your life. This is going to change your life. And, you know, it's just down to the individual to make that decision at the end of the day. Um yeah. About yeah, what's driving them. Come. And so another interesting similarity, I think, with, with the world of learning is um, lots of people that are trying to build something in learning are trying to have an impact. Um, there are very few people that would be in the industry thinking this is where they're going to make all their, their riches um, because there are industries that allow you to do that much much better than uh, than learning and education. So, and there's something similar here in, in the kind of the mindfulness space, where at least it was definitely not obvious that that was going to be something that um, that was going to drive dramatic financial success. It ended up being very, very good, obviously. But how do you try and combine these two? Because so far as I understand, the team was very much impact driven, um, but ended up with a strong commercial success at the same time. And so how how do you try and walk that that balance between building a business and um not losing sight of the kind of the human impact that you're having? Uh-huh. It's a really good question. And I think and this is something just with different things that I'm working on now, I've spent years looking into there's a very um I think one of the cold hard realities about producing or building anything in life nowadays is it will take time and money it takes time and money and you have to get that time and money from somewhere and actually funding any project is quite a challenge you know you've got currently you've almost sadly got a world of two halves you've got the world of charity which by the way has multiple restrictions and and sort of challenges with it if you're trying to do something new or entrepreneurial like it's quite i would say a bit of an archaic legal structure within which to operate um but then obviously there's the fundraising that comes along with charity it's all donation based and that has its own challenges and i've spoken to multiple people who run charities who sadly just have to close at some point because they just can't keep up with the pace of growth. Then you have the world of sort of capitalism and VC funding, et cetera, et cetera, 
where money can come a lot quicker and faster potentially but it's in this legal structure of equity growth you know have it having a return in the future so you know i think you know one of the challenges that we face generally is you're essentially a, you're a bit beholden to these sort of two structures there's not an awful lot in between there's a few bits and pieces that are starting to bubble like community interest companies here in the uk um, but in america it's it's pretty much one or the other and there's not that much in between you know b corps are coming out um so i think it's not so much really about like anything that particularly happened to headspace individually i think headspace did a brilliant job at growing a globally impactful um service um that has changed the lives of millions and millions of people for the better and it would not have been able to do so were it not for funding um and obviously funding comes in the way that it comes nowadays and yes it would be great if more investors were happy just to give their money and let a good project grow and not demand x returns like that would be wonderful i put a plea out to all those people in the world who um, have paid their mortgages off and quite frankly no amount much more money is going to make you happier um you know beyond having the basics in life to be honest with you and so so yeah so i think it's i think you know headspace did what it had to do really to have have global impact and and and, and generate the funds to be able to grow the project in you know as i say it's time and money people's time you have to pay for that time producing things costs money so, so it's a tricky one <laughs> you know you, you yeah. how how do you otherwise do it it's hard so did, did you ever get into a situation where, for example, you knew there was a certain path that had a decent likelihood of um, accelerating revenue growth for the company, which you can then argue the revenue growth helps us scale the company, scaling the company helps us um, grow the impact of the mission that we're all here to, to, to do. Um, but by doing that, that revenue opportunity might exclude um, some portion of um, society that can't benefit from a part of the the yeah. app. Like, were you ever? Did you ever get to a point where you're kind of okay? Well, we get some advantages over here, but we're trading off this other point over here. Or was it always a very clear like, okay, both of them are hundred percent aligned? Yeah, I think you know, I think particularly the the co-founders were very very um strong from the off about the integrity of the service and the experience and the product. And one of the things we launched immediately was a program called Get Some Give Some. So essentially for every subscription um that was purchased, there was a subscription that was given away. And so you can imagine that that became an enormous amount of free subscriptions that were distributed um, all over the world, um, you know, with frontline workers um, at points of crisis all over the world. Um, Headspace also gave free subscriptions to everybody in the NHS through the COVID crisis and enormous, enormous impact like that. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think, you know, I think companies can live with integrity and be with integrity and Headspace did that really the whole way along and i think also with the content as well i think that you know andy had such a deep um you know it wasn't that he just went off and did a mindfulness course for a hot second you know and then came back and was like hey i'm gonna kind of you know put this out there he practiced for 10 years he really was deeply 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 wise with what he was teaching and and everything that came with that and so that was always always put through everything that we did in the company but it's a real challenge of balance it is real it is not easy to to grow big things like that you will always have scratchy edges and difficult decisions to make and um you know that is both the fun of it and and the real challenge of of that kind of journey is you're sort of relentlessly being put up against something new and something you know perhaps controversial that you have to make a decision on but I think because a lot of us sort of during the process, we were practicing meditation very regularly. Um, so even when we were around the table sort of trying to make those decisions, it was very much always coming back to the vision and the mission, you know, the health and happiness of the world and what is most important to put to sort of push this vision forwards. But yeah, I mean, not an easy journey for, for anybody growing anything that has that kind of level of impact. And, and so now you are in a different world. 
right? You're you're doing. Uh, we have a, a few non-exec roles, and you coach other, uh, mostly entrepreneurs, uh, building, building new things, right? What what has the last few years uh, here taught you about how people adopt habits? Maybe more from a learning perspective, because I guess you're now you're now squarely in a learning space, right? But helping people adopt new habits, change the way that they they work, they act, they live, um, they think about things. Anything that you've kind of picked up there? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I think I think quite often in life, um, there's a lot that we know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we do. So a very, very easy example. I know I should not eat chocolate every night. I know I should go for a run at least a couple of times a week. So again, I think this is this piece around you can know everything in the world, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to do or that um, you are going to embody that knowledge. Um, so that is definitely something I've I've sort of seen and witnessed with with people. And, and I think that, you know, that for me is that different type of learning, which I think is more a, a wisdom. There's sort of an innate wisdom that starts to generate in people. And that's what I try to encourage with people that I work with is it's a lot about listen to your gut rather than your head, because people will often in discussions with me or in sessions with me, they will talk a lot and sort of all the thinking and the reasoning comes in. And then quite often I'll ask them to drop below that to their gut. And I'm like, but where is this really coming from in your gut? And then often that's sort of like, unravels certain layers of an onion and then the sort of truth of a situation or a knowing like a deep knowing about something comes out and then in a way they don't need to be told what to do because they know what to do so a lot of the work um i find is about sort of getting people to get to that sort of deep deep knowing within themselves um so i can sort of tell them everything but at the end of the day it's about you know at the end of our session are they actually going to do something and that has to come from their own motivation there's no amount of me to saying anything that's going to make that happen yeah and what would be what so you've kind of worked on basically habits for for a while now right? changing habits um do you have any any tips or kind of as you tried maybe spending this around to you when you try to change a habit mm -hmm. is there anything that you're conscious of now that you're specifically trying to do to help you adopt a new habit or change a habit that you currently have yeah i think that's i do think at the beginning um a a commitment has to be created so setting an intention or making a commitment but that doesn't have to be enormous so for example i work with an amazing company called this mum runs and it's about how to empower more women to be more active more often and normally the, the challenge is that you have this thing over here where you believe you need to go and run for 30 minutes and then look super skinny or super pumped at the end of it but it's just so far off you know like that is just too far a leap actually just even making a commitment for a week to get up and put your running kit on not to go running not to even go out the door but simply to put your running kit on so i think every every sort of change in behavior or every sort of habit change it has to begin with a drive like you have to sort of want something if you don't want it it's just not going to happen and again i can't make you want something i can't make that happen for you you have to you that has to come from within you um, but then even when you've, you know, even when that little bubble of drive or that little bubble of, um, kind of energy begins to exist, it's then about not sort of, it's like holding that energy with such care and not kind of trying to do something too big that all of a sudden you're like, oh, I failed and I just need to chuck it. You know, I'm just, I'm useless at this. It's actually like start really, 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 really small, which again, you know, if I take it back to headspace, take 10, just one 10 minute session per day which actually we then got much much shorter you can now do sessions on there for two minutes or three minutes they're, they're even smaller but just starting very very small. sax is happy yeah sax is super happy <laughs> but it's yeah it's about it's about 
making a few little tiny wins but I think breaking those wins down to be very 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 small to begin with unless and I suppose I say this a lot speaking as a parent of two very young children and um you know so that's important to me I know some people that are like bring on the big win and I'm going to nail it in day one there is also a certain type of person out there who has the capacity to take on something much bigger immediately so I think it's not a kind of, you know, whatever I'm saying in the whole of this interview, it's not a one size fits all. You know, we are all completely uniquely different and we have completely in, unique, unique different drivers and individualities and personalities and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it, it it's really hard to give advice to anybody on anything because, gosh, the multiple different lives that we've lived and the lives that we face every day when we, ca- we wake up. But for me personally, it's very, it's making a commitment like a small palatable commitment and then starting and keep going if it's having the impact that I want it to. Like, oh, I feel good. Like I've actually, you know, I've actually got out of the house today and I've done a walk for 10 minutes. Um, but again, it all comes from a drive, right? We don't do anything unless there's a drive for it. So, no. Okay. And um, as a last question, wanted to ask you what is a question that you have today that you wish you had an answer to um yes I, again I thought long and hard about this and I thought god I, I'm not it's a funny one I'm not really a person that I, I'm sort of happy with the world being a bit unknown you know I'm kind of cool with the fact that like well like you plant a seed and a seed kind of like doesn't know where the light is but it still grows up like there are things like that that I'm like ah absolutely fascinating um yeah but I'm not even that bothered to know the answers but I think genuinely as a parent I suppose if I was really like you know thinking to myself what would I love to know what would I love to have a crystal ball and find the answer to it's just genuinely will my kids be happy like will my kids be happy you know there's a point in life where I will not be here I hope that my children are still here when that time happens but to not be able to know what the rest of their life would be like feels very very sad and it's just something I wish I could so I'm afraid it's nothing particularly intellectual or big life big world question that's applicable to everybody um that is is very applicable to me is you know I wish I I wish I could know the future of my children's lives and um but that's because I live in the world of parenting every day and but you know I think it's it's a big question for for the next generations yeah what's what's the next what's life going to be like for the next generation and the generation after that um big questions and um, do you have any idea which question might have been generated by ChatGPT? Oh, gosh. Remind me the questions again. <laughs> <laughs> we went through quite a, a bit, but we went through kind of how Headspace launched a movement, what changed people's behavior, where did it start, how did people take it seriously, if people approach this differently in different locations or was it, or if it was global from the start, how do you oh balance financial success and growth with a mission to spread, uh, spread mindfulness and meditation? Um, Josh, honestly, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. And in fact, the more you repeat them to me, I'm like, I, I don't, I really don't know. So if I was going to just totally take a guess, I would say it was do uh is it different around the world like do people engage with it different around the world no it was actually the one how do you combine impact and financial growth ah uh, well then chap gbt ai is and uh, there might be a whole other um conversation one day around uh mindfulness training in ai i wonder, uh. I wonder what that what the future of of the the intersection between those two is if there is anything at all or if it's almost an anti-AI movement, but... Um, Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I know we're running up on uh, on the end already. Um, how, how was it? Your first chat in VR? Yeah, it was nice. I mean, slightly uncomfortable headset, not going to lie. I wouldn't... Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's great. As I say, I sort of, 
I enjoy I enjoy technology. I enjoy the new frontiers that we're creating. Um, but I don't know. For me, nothing is as good as real life. Nothing is as good as actual reality versus virtual reality. Um, so yeah, it's good. But I'll, I'll, I, I look forward to seeing you in person, Josh. <laughs> yes. Well, so, to be fair, same same here, right? But we couldn't. Um, probably we have guests from all over the world, and so we have. Like we have a chat that's currently getting uh, spun up one on two on the West Coast actually now, so like it would be a pretty far flight to have a one hour conversation. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Can we high five in VR? Does that work? I'd like to try that. Boom! Oh, that's great. Oh, however, something in my real life just. <laughs> yeah, actually, as as we did that, I almost. Uh, high five my own laptop there and almost fell over. So it was. <laughs> what, did, what did I knock? Hang on. What, what, okay, it's fine. It's just a water bottle. Good. Well, thanks again. Um, thanks, as, as I said, really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's going to be yeah. really interesting and a very different viewpoint to uh, to everybody else that we've had. Um, yeah, on, I know. I think that's the... when you sort of said about it. I was like, you know, I do. I know that sort of my world of learning is very much more wisdom based rather than you know information like, based. Yeah, the whole idea is I'm I'm almost kind of trying to figure out two people with similar viewpoints um, on the podcast. But so I have so at the moment we we have about ten or so, so kind of five different approaches, right? So this is more habit formation, habit creation, wellness, and that. And so I, I'd love to have one more person from that angle. So yeah, really good idea. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Anyways, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Bye. Awesome. <laughs> Have you, a Josh. great day. <laughs> thank Bye. you. Bye. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to reskill and upskill at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Böhler, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.